we observe that Naomi became very embittered. And she left Bethlehem with the, of, of Judea with her husband and two sons, all of which died while living in Moab. And when she heard that there was food in Bethlehem, she embarked on a journey back to Bethlehem. And you recall from the story that Naomi urged her two daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. However, Orpah stayed and Ruth continued on the journey with Naomi. And we're going to kind of finish out chapter 1 this morning. Next we get into chapter 2. And, uh, but, you know, I really struggled with this week's message. Where do you go with it? There's so many things there that we could highlight, so many things that we could draw out. And uh, so, so many thoughts were running through my mind as I read and reread through Ruth chapter 1. But here are a few of my thoughts, just in kind of preliminary here before we get into reading it again. I don't know that I've preached a message series in the last year or two that has embarked or has begun so many discussions on the book of Ruth. It's been amazing. Every time I run into somebody from church, they're saying, well, I've been thinking about this, or I've been thinking about that. I've got more emails from this series than I've gotten in a long time. And it's been really interesting. But the Bible doesn't give us every detail uh, concerning the story, but it obviously gives us the details that God intended for us to have. But the details that we don't have are what has made this whole series interesting. Um, but details like, did Ruth go to Moab of her own free will, or was she just a faithful, obedient wife who willingly followed her husband's leading? Well, it's not her fault. She was just following her husband. has been one of the discussions that we've had everywhere. And I still come back to say, in Matthew it says, these two shall become one. They went together in one accord. Honda was the first vehicle invented that they went with. So um, they were together as husband and wife. You know, and uh, my friend said, you know, Ken, it's like this. He said, when you guys bought a, bought a house, was it just you that signed on the dotted line or was it you and your wife who signed on the dotted line? He said, oh, it was both of us. Okay, you made the decision together. Yes, she went probably out of obedience and respect in submitting to her husband. I would agree with that. But the Bible doesn't give us all the details. Did she go kicking and screaming or did she go willingly? I don't know and neither do you. But the bottom line is they went. And they went to an area that was a sworn enemy of God. But I love the discussions that have come from it. Because that means that you're thinking about the Scripture throughout the week and you're trying to work your way through it and say, how does this apply to my heart and my life? I love that. Details like, uh, did Elimelech and Ruth condone the marriages of their two sons? Did they? I don't know. Were their children rebellious and married Moabite women when they should not have, or did mom and dad get behind them? I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But it's interesting, because there are passages of Scripture where God says He'll cast judgment on those who make wrongful decisions. And we find that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Deuteronomy chapter 28. But the bottom line is, we don't know. So there's this idea as you read through different commentaries and different pastors or, and, and, and professors who've written on this com- or written commentary on these verses, they'll say things like, well, God allowed them to die because they made wrong decisions. Well, if that's totally true, every time we make a wrong decision, we live in fear. So I don't know that that is the correct answer either. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. But you wonder sometimes because there are details that God doesn't give us. But I love the discussion that it's creating. As we go through this, you may not agree with every little thing, but I want you to think about this. What is God saying? What is God doing through the life of Ruth? And how does it fit and apply to my life as a believer and child of God? How does it help me to live? 
So you have to be in the, you know, the, the other thought that came through my mind was, as I was talking with my wife yesterday, was you have to be an incredibly strong person to handle the adversity that Naomi faced. You would have to be. It's one thing to say, okay, I lost my spouse. And then maybe within a given time to lose a child. And then a second child. I don't know what you, but I think that would have a tendency to be able to rock anybody's faith. Um, especially somebody that you know and love and spend the most, part, the most part of your life with. That would be difficult. So I don't doubt for a moment that Naomi was a strong person. I believe that she, she, she fully embraced the sovereignty of God, that she, uh, she understood who God was, that He was great, but in her mind, God just wasn't good at the moment. He was great, but He wasn't good because of what she felt God was doing to her. And we'll see that in a moment. But I believe she was a very spiritually strong woman. But I can begin to understand how loss can greatly affect faith. God, are you here? God, what are you doing? God, I don't understand this. I can understand how the trials and the difficulties and the adversity can rock your faith. And you begin to question, where is God, even though you know God is there? I think we've all experienced that at one point or another in our life. Let's just take a moment and be refreshed with the story in Ruth chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. So follow along as I read that this morning. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to leave the land of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to His people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Now think about this just for a moment. She left the fruitful land of bread, Judah, to go to a wicked land that God despised, and now she's going back alone, or I mean in a state of loneliness, urging her daughters-in-law to stay back. Why? For food. She never repented. Scripture does not tell us anywhere that she repented as she went back. She went back for one reason, food. Okay? Verse 8, she said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. I want to draw your attention to just one key phrase there in verse 8. May the Lord show faithful love. That phrase translated faithful love it comes from the Hebrew word hesed. The Hebrew word hesed. And that, that word hesed is an interesting word. It means to love knowing that you'll get no love in return. It is a commitment type of love. I choose to love you regardless of what you may or may not do in return. It is a commitment type of love. It's not conditional in any way, shape, or form. Because there's no promise of anything in return. And this was the very love that she said, may the Lord bless you with, as she encouraged them to go back to the land of Moab. There was no question in my mind that she knew the God of Abraham. She had not walked with God faithfully, I'm sure, for many years. And with that kind of love that God displays to His people, a, a very committed love, she was blessing them with that kind of a love. I want you to understand, I love you regardless of what you do, but stay there. Don't come with me. 
So this was faithful love, this has said love that was very commitment-oriented. But verse 10, No, they said to her, We will go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who, would, who could bear or become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. And even if I would, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And there's another key phrase we're going to look at in just a moment. Naomi said, look, your sister's-in-law has gone back to her, home pe- her people and to her God, small g. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, do not persuade me to leave you. Or go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and so severe, do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to persuade her. Verse 19. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was, ex- was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has pronounced judgment on me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the land of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So as we look at today's text, we're going to observe the testimonies of three widows and how their outlook of their circumstances affected their lives. I want you to think just for a moment, too, as we get into looking at their testimony and what made them who they were. I want you to think about your own testimony. What is your testimony? Maybe from a a secular viewpoint, we might call it reputation, but more than that as a believer. What is your testimony? Who are you as a child of God? What makes you who you are? Hopefully we can say that because I'm a child of God, because I follow God, because I want to walk in obedience with God, we'll have a testimony of faithfulness and endurance, despite trial and difficulty that may come into our life. But what is your testimony? You see, everybody has a testimony. I like what one evangelist said. He said, you're either a testimony or you're a testifony. And we all know the difference. You know, when we have a testimony of walking with God, people know it. And when you're a fake, people know it. You can't be on both sides of that. And there are a lot of people who are, when they're with church people, quote-unquote, they have a great testimony, and God is good, and God is great, and I'm doing whatever. And then in some circles, they're a testifony because they're fake. And they don't live it out. They're just hearers of the Word, but not doers of the Word. Who are you? Who does God know you to be? Who are you when no one else is watching? Who are you when you are alone and and apparently nobody else is around you? you you? Are you guarding that testimony of obedience and faithfulness to God? Or are we allowing circumstances and self wills and and our own desires dictate how we live? So we have three widows who have three distinct testimonies. Let's start with Naomi. Her name meant gracious one. Uh, often, sometimes, his name was rendered sweet or pleasant one. 
However, as we learned last week, Naomi had become embittered because of her circumstances. At least four times in this passage, she encourages her two daughters-in-law to leave her alone and go back to the homeland of Moab. Now think for a moment. In reality, what would they have to look forward to in Bethlehem and Judah? I mean, what were they really going there for? What would they have to look forward to? Uh, in reality, the girls knew no one in Bethlehem of Judah. More than likely, being from Moab, they probably wouldn't have any uh, friends, or not many friends, and certainly there wouldn't be men chasing them all over the place to, to, to remarry them, especially knowing that they were widows. Um, Jewish folks didn't get along with Moabites. They were enemies. After all, she'd have no rights there as a Jewish citizen. She was, she was from Moab. So what did she really have to look forward to in going back? Not much. And so you can see from a reasonable standpoint why Naomi was saying, stay there. Just go back. Find another person. You're familiar with this place. Your family is here. You can find another husband. Get remarried. Establish a family. Whatever. Just stay there. And I think part of the reason here, as we've looked at, was maybe, as some authors have said, maybe is because she was trying to leave the past and those decisions behind her so she could start over alone in Bethlehem of Judah. But, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just the fact that she was sick and tired of the whole situation. Maybe it was just because she wanted just to be alone. She knew God was great, but she didn't believe God was good for her at the moment. You ever felt like that? I, I felt that way. I mean, I know in my mind, because factually I read God's Word and, and I look at it and I say, God is awesome, isn't He? I mean, we read through His attributes and say, there is no one like our God. But that doesn't change the fact that we go through periods of loneliness. And we say, well, God, where are you? And He's right there the whole time. And we say the old phrase that God has not moved. God is still where He is. It's not God who turns His back most times. Most times it's us who turn our back on God when we choose to walk in sinfulness. I believe that Naomi really, truly did believe that God was great. But she didn't believe He was good to her. And we'll see why in just a few moments. That Naomi developed an attitude whereby she felt unloved. Why do I say that? Look at verses 11 through 13. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? I mean, why would anybody want to go with me? God has obviously showed His disfavor on me. And if you stick with me long enough, you're going to sense God's disfavor on you. Just let's part ways and just pretend it is what it is. I think she really believed it for a moment that she just felt unloved. In other words, she believed that she no longer had God's favor on her life. He allowed this tragedy. He must not love me anymore. Over and over, she blames God for what she's going through. God has, the Almighty has done this to me. She doesn't mince words about the fact she blames God for this. As I've said before, it's amazing how every time we go through a struggle, we have to justify the struggle, so therefore we have to have someone or something to pin it on when we're going through difficult times. Naomi was no different. And oftentimes we're no different. We've got to have somebody or something to blame it on. She must have believed that God's mercy and blessing would not be extended to Orpah and Ruth and Bethlehem. If God has done this to me, He may have the same attitude towards them. So why don't you just stay there? I'll go on by myself. I think another reason that Naomi felt unloved was because of her perception of who God was. Look at verses 20 and 21. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she said, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty 
Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has pronounced judgment on me and the Almighty has afflicted me? I mean, look who God is. Look what He's done to me. He can't love me if He's allowed this. But isn't it amazing how those kinds of discussions came out after 9-11 too? I mean, how could a God love America if He's allowed this? God's at work. You may not see it, but He's at work. But here's an interesting thing. Her perception of who God was. First, Naomi says that the Almighty has done this to me. And it's amazing if you look at that word Almighty, El Shaddai, the powerful one. El Shaddai, the Almighty, has done this to me. God has used His power to do this thing to me. But this thing, allowing my husband to die, allowing my two children to die. God has done this. He's used His power, the Almighty, to do this to me. But then she says, God has used His power, but now then she uses the word Lord, which is a covenant name which emphasizes the relationship that God has with His people. In other words, God brought her back to Bethlehem only to exercise judgment on her for leaving her and leaving in the first place. And there is a quite a school of thought that says God has judged her because of that decision. Possibly looking back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 is where they get that principle. But notice too, however, that nowhere in the text is there any indication that God is angry with Naomi. Nowhere does it say that God is upset with her. But we know through Scripture that God did not like the Moabites where they went. But God doesn't say in this passage of Ruth that He was angry with her in any way. But that was her perception. Ruth was not completely honest in her evaluation of life as she speaks of her present condition. I want you to catch this. This is an interesting passage here. Verse 21. So Naomi came back from the land of Moab with her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Actually, let me go back. Uh, Back to verse 21, excuse me. I read verse 22. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Just consider that phrase just for a moment. I went away full, and now I'm coming back empty. The question that comes to my mind is, Is she being honest with herself? If she was so full, why were they leaving to begin with? I mean, if everything was so great, why did they have a need to leave? Because life wasn't full. It was not full. Let's talk about that just for a moment. There was a famine in the land. Is that being full? Land values were decreasing. Is that being full? Um, Her idea of full was indeed living in Bethlehem, yet she chose to go to Moab with her husband. She didn't go away full. But here's what I often find. Sometimes the grass is not greener on the other side. I mean, isn't it amazing how when we go through a difficult time, and things, we, we perceive things to, to not be getting better, and we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and, well, it's better over there. And we find out in hindsight that it would have probably been better just to stay where you're at. I think a lot of us have experienced that situation, that principle, when you go find a new car. You think, wow, if I have this other car, it has less mileage, it's probably going to be more dependable, it, it's going to last longer, 
And then you get that new car and you think, man, my, my payments just doubled or I had to put more out of pocket to get it and I'm still doing repairs on the thing. I should have just kept what I had. Anybody ever been there before on a vehicle? Right. The grass is not always greener there. Sometimes it's best just to stay put and say, God, what is it that you want me to learn through this? Sometimes God wants you to just sit still and wait. But here's what I find. Unfulfilled expectations can often lead us to false realities. Unfulfilled expectations can often lead us to false realities. Because they have this expectation that everything's supposed to be great. We're supposed to have food for our families. Our land is supposed to yield us a great harvest. Everything is supposed to be good, but it's not, so I'm going to go find a better reality in Moab. And then when we get there and realize that things aren't so great, we come back and say, it was so awesome there. No. False expectations can lead to a false reality. Let me give you another example of this. Remember the Israelites? Remember when God, in His great power and wisdom, brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's bondage? Remember the situation? I mean, God starts out in the beginning of the book and He says this, I know what you're going through because I've heard your cries by reason of your taskmasters. He said, I hear you loud and clear. I hear that they are beating you, that they are making you work hard. I, I, I get everything that's going on. I realize you don't like it here. I hear you loud and clear. So God steps out and, and raises up a Moses and Aaron to bring them out. And then all of a sudden, later, and then when the adversity comes, what did they come back and say? It was better back in Egypt. Really? Because I remember you distinctly screaming and crying out that you hated it. False expectations lead to, or unfulfilled expectations lead to a false reality. And their false reality is it was better back there. No, it wasn't. It was not better back there. But that's what they believed because their focus was not on God. And Naomi, for a little while, even though she had seen God work in her life, even though she knew the true and only living God, her unfulfilled expectations brought her to a false reality. That God is not always good. But here's the amazing thing. That God was at work in her life more now than ever before. I mean, what she doesn't know is that God is going to provide for her through Ruth and Boaz. But her focus was on the problem rather than the provider. Did you get that? God was at work more now than ever. He was working in the background. He was behind the scenes, setting the stage. But you know what I find out in my life, and maybe you find it too if you're honest with yourself, is that we're pretty impatient. I don't know about you, but I, 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 was, I was driving down the road with David the other day, and I said, I don't know what it is, but the older I get, the more impatient I get with people driving around me. can't stand dumb drivers. I know, it's because I'm in a hurry. I get it. But aren't we all, in some areas, extremely impatient and not willing to wait, not wanting to wait? I think for Naomi, it was just overwhelming can't blame her from a human perspective. She's lost everything that was of any worth to her. Then we come to a second woman, a second widow. 
Her name was Orpah. Just a very short belief about her because the Bible doesn't give us a lot about her. But what was her testimony? Orpah developed an attitude of convenience or comfort. She lost, yes. She lost her husband, yes. The Bible doesn't tell us that she had any children. But for a moment, she was willing to go and went part of the way. And it's amazing, as I was reading through some commentary on this, it was very common for people who didn't intend on going on the journey to often go part of the journey with them in this Middle Eastern custom. They would go a day's travel on a three-day journey. They would go two days on a three-day journey and then go back, with ever never having the intention of going. So it wasn't uncommon for all of them to go and then for some of them to go back. That was how they left someone they loved, by going with them part of the way of the journey. But for a while, Orpah was willing to go. No, we'll not leave you. I'm going to go. But you'll find out the day's journey in, she turned back. Why? She chose to remain in Moab. Moab was what, is what was comfortable. She knew the land. She knew the people. She knew the customs. She knew the traditions. Quite possibly, she may have even loved it. God's Word doesn't tell us that she bought into the God of Naomi and what Ruth had obviously experienced. In fact, nothing more is really spoken of Orpah once she chose to go back. You don't read about her anywhere else in the New Testament. It kind of just falls off into nebulous la-la land. You don't, you don't hear of her again. She is quickly forgotten. But for Orpah, it was easier to stay in a comfortable environment, environment where everything was familiar. You ever been in that situation before? I don't like it, but, it's inv- but, but, but I know what it is. I, I don't enjoy the circumstances of life right now, but at least I know what's here. I'm comfortable. I'm secure in this. I know I should probably go over there, but my security is here. We see it all the time. People in abusive relationships. I know I probably shouldn't stay in this. I know he beats me and bludgeons me, but I'm not going to go because at least here I know that I'm, I know what my environment is. In extreme situations, I understand. But so often we're afraid to take a step of faith and step into the unknown. I think that was Orpah. She She wasn't willing to take the step and go forward. I think she did love Naomi. She went with her part of the way. But I don't think she was willing to go the whole way, obviously. She's turned back to what was known, what was comfortable, what was secure. And we never know what happened with her. Sometimes, in our minds, it's easier to stay put than to take the step of faith. Maybe God's asking you to do something. God is asking you to step forward in an area of ministry. And it's amazing how often, and this happens here in this church from time to time, someone will come up to me and say, Pastor, I've got a a burden for X, Y, Z. And I say, that's wonderful. Why don't you start praying about it and see if God might open some doors to do that? Well, you know, I'm really busy. Hello. If God is burdening you to do this and laying this burden on your heart, maybe he wants you to take the step of faith to walk through that door. Because God didn't give me the burden He gave you. He gave you that burden. It's yours to bear. But it's easier to stay put than to take the step of faith because I'm not sure where it's going to lead me. I'm not sure what's going to be expected of me once I take that step. I'm not sure how it's going to all unfold. That's where faith comes in. 
That's where trusting God comes in. If everything was easy, my goodness, everybody would be doing it. Are you willing to exercise your faith? Are you willing to take that step? I don't know what happened to Orpah. We don't read it. That that chapter's closed and gone and over with. Your story is still being written. What is God asking you to do? What kind of step of faith? Might that be your testimony of, hey, God gave me a burden, and I obediently stepped forward to it, and look what God did. That'd be a great ending to a story, wouldn't it? And then God gives us the third person, the third widow. And Ruth had a testimony of commitment. How do I know that? Look at verses 14 through 18. Let's read these. It says, again, they wept loudly, And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, do not persuade me to leave you or go back and not to follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to persuade her. Ruth developed an attitude of commitment. At this point, I don't believe that Ruth had any idea of what was coming down the pike. She couldn't have known. Marriage was not yet in the picture. But her decision to go with Ruth to Bethlehem had nothing to do with meeting a man. At this point. It wasn't like in her mind she says, well, maybe if I just go up there, I'll find a great guy in Bethlehem with Judah, we'll get married, and I can kind of bring in... Her commitment was to Ruth. Her commitment was to follow Ruth's God, which tells me that Ruth knew of the greatness of God. She obviously had lived it out to an extent where Ruth could see it and be challenged by it. Ruth's decision to stay with Naomi was not for personal gain, as Naomi clearly told Ruth she had nothing to offer except for God's favor, disfavor. Excuse me. Look what God has done to me. You stick with me, God might do it to you. You don't want to be with me. But her decision to stay with Naomi was not for personal gain. Ruth's decision to stay with Naomi was because of her faith in God. It's, it's interesting just for a moment. Uh, in Deuteronomy, let me just read a passage for you. I said there's an interesting phrase in this passage. It says that Orpah kissed and wept and turned back, but Ruth what? Clung to her. And that clung is an interesting phrase here. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verse 20, it says this, You are to fear Yahweh your God and worship Him, remain faithful to Him, and take oaths in his name. It's the idea of commitment. It's the same Hebrew root word, phrase, for being committed to the God of Yahweh. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 4 says this, You must follow the Lord your God and fear him. You must keep his commandments and listen to his voice. You must worship him and remain faithful to him. The idea behind remain is to cling, to hold to, to, to not separate from. This phrase that she was using was the same phrase 
that God's people were to have as they were making a commitment to stay faithful and true and obedient to himself. And Ruth noticed this. And she says, I will cling to you and to your God and to your people forever. Ruth had denounced her Moabite culture and identity. She gave it up. And can I just say this as a child of God? We're to renounce our earthly, worldly past. We are citizens of where? As children of God. Heaven. This is not our permanent home. We are here for a little while, and then we go home to heaven as His children. So this culture that goes on around us should not be our culture. You see, sometimes we say, well, that's what the culture is doing, and so we have to embrace our culture. No, you don't, because there's a culture that trumps this culture. It's called kingdom culture. What is God asking us to do? How is God asking us to live? How does God want us to think? How does God want us to use our time, talents, treasure? What does God think of our life? That's the culture we need to embrace, a culture of the kingdom of heaven. Because this is temporary. It's short. Sometimes we live as if we're going to be here forever. We, we, we prepare as if we're never going to leave. Ruth had denounced her Moabite culture. She had denounced her identity as a Moabite woman. She had denounced those Moabite gods. Are we willing to denounce this world that we live in to live for another home that we will one day live in? So what can we learn? I think as we look at the three widows... With three, three separate testimonies. Orpah departed. She had a testimony of departing back from Moab. She followed shallow beliefs in a familiar life. Naomi returned to her homeland with weak faith and an embittered soul. Ruth arrived with her renewed faith looking beyond the circumstances to the God who allowed them. So why well, turn back Will I be bitter, or will I look forward to the God who has allowed them? See, the choice is ours. You can't control the things that God allows into your life. You can't. I, both hands and a foot up in the air. There are things that happen I don't like. I have no control over them. But I can either get bitter and get ticked off at God, or I say God has allowed them. And I'm going to look beyond them because I know what's coming. Ruth could see that the God of Naomi, even though she had let the circumstances embitter her, she saw enough to know that God is real. That God is faithful. And God is going to take care of them. What kind of a testimony do you have? Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. You see, because every one of us, if I say your name to those that know you, a certain thought will come up. Why? Because that's the testimony, that's the reputation that you have earned based on your actions in life. If I say Orpah, you now have an idea of who Orpah was. If I say Naomi, 
you now have an idea that comes to your mind regarding Naomi. If I say Ruth, you have an idea of who the character of Ruth and what she lived for. But what happens when your name is spoken? Child of God. Obedient. Faithful. Quitter. Who does God know you to be? Who do you need to be? The one thing I've learned in my short years on life is that God is in control even when I don't see it. There's a whole story unfolding behind Ruth chapter 1. I mean, they're in this tunnel, and they can't yet see the light at the end of it. But they're trudging their way through it. But at the other end, it's glorious. Unbelievably awesome. Something that you couldn't have predicted if you didn't read the end of the book. But that's the way God works. And we know what awaits us. And what is required for the here and the now is faithfulness and obedience. How are you doing with that? It's a question I have to ask myself all the time. How am I doing with that? Because I know my own shortcomings. You know yours. But God is telling us to take another step. Just trust me. Just trust me. Just trust me. I know what I'm doing. You can't see it, but just trust me. What kind of a testimony will you have? People are watching you realize that? Your kids are watching, your grandkids are watching, your neighbors are watching, everybody's watching. We live in a nosy world. But they're watching. What are they seeing? 